This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. Only 13% of Israeli companies have cyber insurance, according to a June 2019 survey of executives, decision makers, and insurance companies by the Israel National Cyber Directorate. The main reasons for not having such insurance are lack of awareness to cyber threats and lack of financial viability. Many executives in the industry, agriculture, construction, and retail, said they didn't know cyber insurance even existed. We'll talk with our first guest about the insurability of uh, cyber incidents. My name is Asaf Lubin. I'm an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society at Harvard University and a visiting scholar here at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the Fetterman Cyber Security Research Center. So what is cyber insurance? Cyber insurance is now a $4 billion industry that is aimed to provide victims with uh, indemnification, uh, insurance coverage, uh, in the case of, a, of such a cyber event. By 2025, certain estimates have assumed that this will go up to $20 billion industry. Uh, it's currently predominantly within the United States. And so what will really make this explode is if it kind of grows into the European markets. It's predominantly for um, uh, collectives, but that could be both private entities and public entities. So cities are buying cyber insurance, police departments are buying cyber insurance. But most of these in, uh, insured are, uh, take a city, for example, Baltimore, just uh, recently purchased a security um, um, cyber insurance after suffering a massive ransomware attack. Um, they don't have a good IT, and that's part of the reason why they're relying on insurance to cover them in the case of an event like this. And there's an interesting story about a company that was uh, attacked, cyber attacked, and the insurance company that won't pay. Right, right. so this is a case now pending before uh, an Illinois court. The company is called Mondelez. Uh, Mondelez is a company we all know and love because they produce Oreo cookies. Oreo cream sandwich. After the massive Notpedia incident, it was uh, masquerading itself as a ransomware attack, but according to Western intelligence agencies, it was produced by the Russians as part of a cyber campaign against Ukraine. Uh, Mondelez was one part of that collateral damage. Um, the company uh, had uh, massive business interruption to its supply chains and inability to meet uh, market demands, uh, which cost her $100 million plus dollars in losses. And so it turned to its general commercial and property insurer, uh, Zurich, and asked Zurich, do you mind covering me um, for this um, uh, harm business interruption? And Zurich said, we'd love to. There's just a, uh, an exclusion right at the bottom of, of the contract you signed with us that says we don't cover warlike events. A lot of times state actors don't um, attack on their own. They have companies or hacker groups. They can have a reasonable deniability. This is not us. This is some rogue hackers. and. Even if it is the state, is it war or is it espionage or is it what can you compare it to in the physical world? Uh, part of the challenge that the court will have to face is setting up evidentiary standards for determining both cyber attribution. Should we apply domestic tort standard for attribution, international standards for attribution? It's really funny because, you know, I'm, I'm an international law by lawyer by training. And so. Um, I, I would be sitting on these panels where international lawyers are talking about, we need an international body that will try to do cyber attribution for us because we can't do it. It's a complex mess. And now a local judge in Illinois will be the first to tackle this massive global challenge. The worry that some people have is that the judge will just say, well, listen, the intelligence agencies came out and said Russia did it. So I'm not going to scrutinize whether or not that's true. I'm just going to trust what they said. And that the worry there is that what stops 
every type of a massive cyber attack from the insurers going to lobby Congress to lobby exe- the executive branch and say, can you come out and say that Russia <laughs> did it, China did it, so that we don't After have After the fact. After the fact, yeah. Um, given that the intelligence agencies obviously don't provide any corroborative evidence. So the war exclusion has been a traditional exclusion in insurance policies for a long time. They're not new, Go- going back to piracy in the high seas. And in fact, we have uh, case law around this. What is different here is that we don't have very clear rule on what is war in cyberspace. And in any event, the insurers who don't like going down this path have started moving away from the traditional clause that said war-like events, like in the Mondela's case, to just more explicit state-sponsored or sovereign-led attacks. So now we don't care if it's in war or in peace, we just care on who did it. And if a state did it, we don't cover. And that poses a whole different set of um, challenges around the attribution stuff that we were talking about. What you were saying in your research is that there are categories of cyber harm, which we should think as a society, if they should be covered. That's not so much from an economic viability standpoint um, or a market or actuarial standpoint, but rather from the question of whether or not these types of harms should be indemnified from a public policy, societal values point of view. Take, for example, GDPR fines. So general data protection regulation of the European Union. Of the European Union, which is supposed to protect the privacy and the, the rights on the data of users, of citizens. So we've already witnessed, once uh, the GDPR has entered into effect in May 2018, a number of GDPR watchdogs around the European Union uh, issuing uh, significant fines against companies who had violated uh, the regulation. And so the question then becomes, should an insurance company step in and insure this? And you would think, that's crazy. Uh, the whole point of the GDPR fines are to deter you from committing any future harms. At the same time, though, I would argue, as I do in, in my upcoming paper, that there would be certain justifications to indemnify, at least in the short term, and or for certain types of GDPR violations. Because so, we're not sure exactly how courts will interpret that's the That's exactly the right. So if the whole reason for why we don't indemnify is because we don't want to indemnify intentional torts or criminal acts, the question is, is there criminality or is there malice around a violation of GDPR? And the answer is that not always. And so it could be argued that the in the interim period, as, as, as the law matures, we will allow indemnification for that business risk for that time. Uh, and in the long run, we might not. The European Union member states have different interpretations. There's few states that do, uh, countries that do allow GDPR indemnifications, others that don't. Uh, the OECD is supposed to come out and say what it thinks around this topic. And what is interesting is the most insurance policies say, we will provide you coverage for penalties, administrative fines, and so on, so long as it's in line with the domestic law that this contract is bound. Overall, um, uh, the assumption should be where, where the company is conducting most of its business. One thing I would love to move us to is, is another type of cyber risk that I think is, is prevalent, which is ransomware attacks. It's extortion. It's simple extortion. Give us the money or your computers or your information is inaccessible. And then if you don't have backup, which the insurance company might demand in the future, you're paralyzed. Uh, the FBI currently estimates that there are about 4,000 ransomware attacks happening every single day worldwide. These ransomware attacks can cost a lot of money. And people prefer to pay because if somebody damaged your, your computers and they're inoperable, you're in big trouble. But if your information can be released, decrypted, then it's like a business expense. Like, okay, I'll pay $50,000, $100,000, and I'll get my business up and running. But the problem is 
that if everybody does that, the tragedy of the commons, because it only cost me $50,000 and it only cost you $50,000. But what it did was encourage hackers to continue developing and deploying uh, ransomware attacks. Right. So a couple of things on that. One is, uh, first of all, hackers are really smart. So they are actually charging you in Bitcoin less than what it would cost you to do a full recovery to your network and are even willing to negotiate with you to lower the price. There is a really clear incentive, not just for the um, victim, but also for the insurance company to say, well, if I have to indemnify you for the full recovery or for this one-off payment, I'll indemnify you for the one-off payment. And that's, as you said, a real problem for society. Because it legitimizes and uh, popularizes the uh, ransomware attacks because everybody, everybody wins in a sense. And there's nothing, (laughs) and there's not even stopping the the hacker from attacking the same victim over and over again. Um, And so what is interesting there is how little regulators and law enforcement have done to prevent this menace. And so let me just give two examples of, uh, of that. One is that traditional kidnap and ransom policies. Think of CEOs of companies going to Latin America and getting kidnapped. So old policies used to have a clause in there that says, if you want the insurer to cover you for that kidnapping, you'll have to first contact law enforcement and involve law enforcement. And traditionally, law enforcement would have to be involved because the kidnapping would happen in a foreign country. And you'll need that cross-border law enforcement involvement to ensure that the kidnapper is returned. And then this is something that is not uh, uh, done under the table between the uh, criminals and the company or the insurance company. At least law enforcement is aware is of aware. what's happening. And, and cyber insurance policies have removed that traditional clause. Oh, okay. so, so it's not there. In fact, I talked to a number of brokers who said to me, you're kidding. You want me to include it? If I do, no one will buy my policy because the victims are worried about reputational costs or complying with demands from law enforcement in dealing Even with Even though the they are supposed to, in certain cases, report to the state or to the customers when something happens to the data. So most most data breach notification requirements of the kind you describe, there's a question of whether or not they apply to ransomware. And so no one notifies under law and also the insurance companies don't demand that you notify. So there's no notification. So So the only way to solve this would be to regulate it, to say it is illegal from insurance. Exactly. And it's very common that state legislators or regulators in each of the 50 states of the United States can demand certain additional to traditional policies to make that happen. But that's only one half of the problem. Another problem is that regulators and law enforcement have not set any standards of when we think that ransom should be paid. We might say that we should allow to pay the ransom in the case that there's a real threat to human life or significant harm to property. So think of a hospital suffering a ransomware attack. And if we don't pay right now, people will die on the surgery table. There's a great Grey's Anatomy episode that, that kind of highlights this uh, from a couple seasons ago. But we might not want to indemnify in the case that the harm to the victim is very limited. So this highlights to me a place for the FBI, for the Secret Service, which are the two primary law enforcement agencies in the United States for cyber crime prevention to introduce certain types of regulations. Unfortunately, when I presented this to, for example, the uh, former FBI agents, they all rise up. You're kidding. We should set regulations here. This is so sensitive. We should not. And I say to them, the government decides life and death decisions every day. I don't see a reason why ransomware should be where you stop the buck. They're saying we don't want to get our hands dirty in the messy business of deciding when and how ransom should be paid in these cases. And and they're also kind of happy with their blissful ignorance of not getting notified about some of these ransomware attacks. And in the interim, we all suffer as there's more and more of this. It's now a real epidemic in the United States. Cities, counties, police departments, schools, hospitals are all being ransomed. Um, it's, it's 
a tragedy. And how do you suggest dealing with these kinds of categories where it's debatable whether insurance companies should pay or not? What my paper does is that I look at traditional policies that existed for the physical harm for which there is a cyber parallel. So if you think about cyber terrorism and should we insure cyber terrorism, well, we already have 20 years post 9-11 on terrorism insurance policy. So let's look at what the case law, what the insurance practice has been around that and see whether or not it's comparable. Once we make those comparisons, we could also say, ask the question of what makes cyber harms or cyber perils unique and what justifies maybe in the context of cyber to step out of the traditional bounds that we have developed. So in the context of cyber terrorism, my paper discusses the question of whether or not we need what we call governmental backstops. So after 9-11, no insurer wanted to cover terrorism attacks because of the mass casualties and harm that 9-11 produced and the amount of money that the insurers had to pay in claims after the incident. And so the government, who was worried about there being an insurance lag and gap, introduced this thing called a backstop, where they're saying, the next time there's a 9-11, a massive incident, if the insurance coverage goes beyond a certain point, the government will step in as a reinsurer. So we will then insure the insurers to ensure that there's enough money in the pocket of whoever needs it to pay the claims. You might think of the same thing for cyber terrorism, and yet many countries who have introduced backstop for terrorism insurance have not done the step of applying it also to cyber terrorism. And even those who have, have not taken it the step further saying, we should also provide backstop for state-sponsored attacks who are not cyber terrorism. And you would think, again, we mentioned not Pitya before or WannaCry, those are types of attacks that were attributed back to states and therefore might not fall under the category of terrorism as defined internationally. And so the backstop might not even be triggered. And so we need to expand the backstop in this unique context so also cover state-sponsored events. But these are very complicated questions. Currently, Congress is debating whether to renew or not to renew the U.S. backstop for terrorism by 2020. And their inclination is not to renew it, even for traditional terrorism, because they're saying, we haven't had a 9-11 in 20 plus years, so we don't need this stuff. And my argument in the paper is that as this cyber stuff increases in threat, the, ch the likelihood of a potential massive mega cyber terrorist event or cyber state sponsored event in the United States is actually quite high. And in fact, it's one of the top threats that the Director of National Intelligence in the United States has identified for the U.S. Asaf Lubin, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This has been great. Cybersecurity threats have been here for at least decades. But still, the insurance world has not yet matured in this uh, field. We'll talk about why with our guest. Dr. Ariel Levite from the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. You've been uh, researching this uh, subject. We think of insurance taking off the risk of your hands, but not uh, less important uh, uh, role for cyber to play is a de facto a soft regulator. It's someone that need, tells you how to behave in a behavior that would then diminish the possibility that something terrible would befall on you. Not everybody complains to the police about cyber attacks, but they do complain to their insurer. All right. And they are trying to get the insurers to pay, of course. So as a huge depositors of information, they can also play a hugely important role here in trying to, to um, shed light on the phenomena and what could potentially affect things. Third, and no, no less importantly, we are in a, living in a day and age where intergovernmental agreements are very difficult to, to arrive by. 
But insurance companies can harmonize rail requirements internationally without, with great ease. And it's uh, especially important because cyber attacks sometimes originate from one country and are um, done in another one. Or even more importantly, that they attack, uh, sort of attack occurs against one country and it spills over to many other countries as we have seen in recent years. The insurance companies rightly do not want to cover events which they consider to be exclusively in the state domain, namely state-sponsored attacks or state-sponsored uh, attacks which are carrying through proxies which are considered a warlike action. So we have a few lawsuits uh, in the mess sort of uh, currently being um, uh, debated in front of some courts uh, in the United States, precisely over this issue when the, uh, what was reputedly Russian attacks uh, against Ukraine had spilled over and, and affected quite a few other prominent players. The, the important thing is that we shouldn't leave it to the courts. We should create a situation where there is clarity Clarity in the eyes of the insured, clarity in the eyes of the insurer, clarity in the eyes of the um, insurance regulator, clarity in the eyes of those who are worried about cyber attacks on the national level of what type of, of damages would be covered under insurance policies and what would not and under what conditions. And what are the recommendations that you've developed uh, in your research? Well, one is that we need to redefine how war reclusion applies in cyberspace. It's clear that you can't expect insurance companies to really pay damages of wars. We have to redefine both the circumstances in which cyber attacks are considered warlike or not. We also have to do away with the presumption that we would know who is the attacker and whether it's a state or it's not a state or it's a hybrid organization and so on. Which means that on the one hand, you would have to exclude uh, wars in which cyber is just one of those areas of confrontation. But at the same time, you would also have to find some other ways of bounding the commitment of the insurance companies for those areas and other scenarios. They could be by the magnitude of the attack, the type of the effects that are produced and so on. The second area that requires some attention is how does one bound the commitment of the insurance companies for catastrophic risks? In other areas of catastrophic risks, there has been a tradition in which catastrophic risks do involve, at the end of the day, either a pool of insurance companies and or some government backstopping. So here, one of the issues that we're now working on is to try and figure out where the governments need to, to come in. To give you an example, suppose the electrical utility came down, it would affect almost everybody else in a, in a country. And so we, you're dealing with, with this catastrophic cumulative effect. The third is um, that the insurance companies are running into a problem of assessing what type of risks they're taking upon themselves when they're insuring. So one of the things we're trying to work with the private sector is what type of tools are emerging that would make them better able to assess and particularly quantify So one area that we are now highlighting is the need to engage in serious information sharing between insurance companies, between insurance companies and governments. And that information could be harnessed to quantify the risk, but also to provide the insurance regulators with the sense that the insurance companies have not taken upon themselves risks that at the end of the day, they won't be able to meet in severe circumstances. Thank you very much, Eli Levit. You're more than welcome. Now let's talk with someone from the insurance industry itself. So uh, I'm Sharon Shacham, currently the CEO of uh, Betach Toren, which is an insurance agency in Israel. 
also uh, doing insurance globally and previously um, vice president commercial lines in a local company in AIG Israel and before that working in the industry as well in insurance companies almost 20 years. How did cyber insurance come about? So this policy started around the 90s in the US like everything starts in the US a lot of the things in the industry in the insurance industry and um, it started moving to towards the east it started out basically due to change in regulations so they had uh, third-party claims of uh, privacy breach and notification expenses that the companies had to bear when their customers were exactly exposed. they were exposed their private data was exposed and the regulator basically the law it was mandatory for them to notify all these subjects that their information was released and they also had to do credit monitoring for example and So that's how it started. But then it started to evolve because the risks has changed. So if we started out as third-party claims and some very specific expenses to the insured itself, to the company, it moved on to other first-party expenses. So they had crisis management expenses. We now have an event within a company. We have to notify. Our stock is going down. We have to deal with the media. Maybe we have not just ransomware or stealing of information. Maybe we have a denial of access event. So people are coming in the morning. They're turning on their computers and nothing is working. We have servers that are being encrypted. We have production floors that are not working. And now we have a crisis that we need to manage. And then we moved into network interruption, which is the big denial of service. Let's say you're a call center, you're a production company. Uh, a manufacturing company and we've had that in the past um you may recall the big um, ransomware that was introduced mainly in the UK the whole healthcare system that was infiltrated but at the same time on the other part of the world Nissan Renault factory had to close down just for the fear that something has infiltrated their uh, production sites so that happens as well so we have network interruption and business interruption loss of profit if you have a downtime of let's say a day or two days and you are a selling company and Or manufacturing company that has to send out shipments and you cannot do that because all your inventory is shut down you have losses and that is already first party all those things could happen to a company because of a fire a break in an earthquake a flood those dangers are not new the method is new yeah let's say it's newer but there is a misconception so I had a conversation for example with a CEO and It explained to me for 15 minutes why they have the best protection measures on technology and they don't need cyber insurance and then I was looking around and true story I was looking at all their fire protections and I saw that they have a lot of protection for the physical part for the tangible parts of the company they have a fire department which is no more than five minutes away they have burglary alarms they have the fire detection the very unique and specific sprinkler system that they needed yet they bought fire insurance and And I asked him, okay, you have the same thing here for fire, but for some reason, fire is very self-explanatory on why you would buy that insurance because cyber is so untangible and it's so hard for the companies on their own risk management to try and even assess the loss. It's kind of like ignored. So today where um, everything can be uh, infiltrated and today on the cyber policies, we're still dealing only with coverage for financial losses. We're not at the physical level yet. Most of the policies do not exclude cyber on the physical side. So if you have a, um, a physical loss policy, a fire extended loss fo- policy, most of the policies, not all of them, we're now starting to see exclusions going in, but they still cover the physical part. So it's not yet at the, at the side of the cyber insurance, but I think those are going to be the next stages because when they're going to be omitted from coverage from one place, 
another policy is going to have to bring in the solution. But yes, definitely um, a lot of the losses they think may be covered are not covered under their traditional uh, insurance scheme. How big is the cyber insurance market uh, nowadays? If we're talking about a $6 billion industry currently and expected to grow by $2 billion each year in the next three years, we're talking about hundreds of billions of uh, damage, potential damage worldwide. It's a very lucrative uh, business for the hacking part. It's, uh, if once it used to be uh, a very uh, unique, let's say, society of people that are hacking, trying to prove something to somebody that they're able to hack the Pentagon, at the end of the day, we have a 16-year-old. Here we're talking about organized crime. We're talking about cyber terrorism. Uh, we're talking about specific countries that have an interest to cause a lot of financial damage to the other side. So they're not trying to hack this small, medium business. They're doing it widespread. It's kind of like they're, they're trying to attack at the same time millions of small businesses. And you might bite. be caught in the net. <laughs> exactly. You're caught in the net. But insurance itself may be a, an incentive for hacking because... If in the past my business would be hacked and they would ask me for ransom uh, and I would say, sorry, I don't have the money. Uh, now, if I have insurance, I, I can sue my insurance company. Doesn't that make hacking more um, um, like makes it more organized and more uh, uh, official? Well, that would be true if they would check that. And that would be true if it was a very unique insurance to buy and ad hoc. But since we're talking about widespread attempts for infiltration and not a specific target, you may talk about Israel specifically, which Israel in itself is a target for companies that are associated with, associated with Israel or very large accounts. I think they take into account today that a bank might, ha might have uh, cyber insurance. But actually, I think cyber insurance helps many times to avoid the payment of ransom because cyber insurance provides crisis management and access to experts. A small, medium company might not have access to it or cash flow. When in the past, a hacker is not a nice person. So if you say you don't have money, that doesn't mean they're releasing your information or you're releasing your server or unencrypting it for you and saying, sorry, we'll come back next year. Maybe you'll have insurance but rather they leave you in that state and you have to spend your own money to get somebody who is going to unhack you and get you back to, to work and ensure your business continuity. Insurance companies basically provide that service within the policy. So if they may suggest you either pay or not pay the ransom and reimburse you for it. In many cases, I've been involved in cases where, where they came in and said, no, don't pay anything. We know how to uh, release you from this uh, burden and make sure it doesn't happen again. And then you don't have to pay the ransomware. So the insurance companies are making sure uh, businesses are safer. So they don't only pay out if you were hacked, but they try to mitigate hacking in the bud. Exactly. And the other thing is insurance doesn't want to cover businesses that are really prompt to these things. So it can help in the long run, basically create some sort of a benchmark of a minimal protection that you may have. It may promote different solutions, help uh, larger companies that provide you with solutions of firewalls and uh, antivirus and so on to create some sort of best standard. So you'll be able to be insured. But on the other hand, you lower your risk as well. Who writes those benchmarks? Is it experts? Is it the insurance companies or is it the lawmakers? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, all of them. So if you look at Israel, you have the cyber authority, which is responsible also for the public and the, ent uh, the private people and also the companies in order to create that standard. Uh, but it has to come along with insurance and lawmakers as well. If today's cyber is considered a new breaking in uh, kind of policy, a new thing, 
Um, I don't think it's considered that anymore. I think it's a, a perception of most of the public. It's going to become kind of like a standard thing that's going to come with your insurance. Even for private insurance for my house, for my mortgage. Yes, I think we're going to see that. We're seeing it already in the U.S. market. It's going to come in in the uh, in European market. It's going to come into Israel as well, definitely. Having said all that and seeing how um, cybersecurity and cyber attacks are uh, very prevalent in the media, why don't people buy cyber insurance? First of all, they rely a lot, a lot in the technology that they have. They think it's going to be okay. They rather invest in technology, which seems more understandable to them on what it prevents rather than ensure something that is kind of untangible and they cannot assess how much it's going to affect their own company. There is a misconception again that it doesn't touch us, that it only has to do with internet companies. It has to do with e-commerce companies, not production companies, which is definitely not Wrong. true. <laughs> uh, we've seen in the past year a lot of manufacturing companies that have had infiltration through their manufacturing plants. They had to shut down other plants just to prevent infiltration over there. We've seen the intellectual property stolen exactly. from big companies. Yes. And um, also, a lot of the companies forget that they're third parties to other companies. And sometimes the small medium company is actually the backdoor entrance to a larger entity. Uh, which the is good very, old uh, supply chain hack. Exactly. And then you're the backdoor. You're liable for that. So the company, the larger company may be protected. Your but employees if, might put you in risk. Exactly. A lot of the events that happen, happen either from innocent employees that press something they shouldn't press, that enter a link they shouldn't enter, and then the whole company is exposed, or at least a part of it. Some is rogue employees, even a maintenance uh, person that comes in. I had a talk with somebody who explained to me again how the company is protected. And uh, he talked to me about his watch and he sees all his data on uh, how he runs. And then I looked at it and he turns the computer around, the work computer, and this was a financial institution. And he shows me how it's connected to his work computer. And then I looked at him and I looked in the watch and he said, I didn't even think about it. So you think everything is, is unconnected and you have control. You don't really have control. I think a lot of people aren't aware that there is a problem, but there is also a solution, which is through insurance. And I think the most important thing is that every company, small, a medium, a very large company, whatever industry they're in, have to do their own risk management and just put this on the table. The answer may be at the end of the day that cost effectively or not, cost versus value to buy or not to buy. But if you're a public entity, you have to have that discussions. Directors and officers are personally liable if something happens. So that needs to be on the table, even if the decision is not to buy insurance. The discussion has to be made and you have to check all um, the risk management within, uh, let's say, a six month or uh, a year time frame, because something may change within the company that changes the risk that you're exposed to. Sometimes things change outside. So if you said before GDPR, some companies haven't changed anything. They've dealt with Europe before. But when GDPR came into the picture, it changed their own liability. So they needed to make a change. Even if you change your business in the sense of the people you do business with, exactly. you have to look into cyber insurance. Right. So if you're a local company and you go into new jurisdictions, you have to check, check that. If you go into new different activities, if you go into outsourcing, if you go from a private company to public company, a lot of things can change within the company. But the most important thing is sometimes some nothing changes within the company, but something changes around you. That already in itself poses uh, something that needs to be checked. Shalom Shacham, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.